Church, let's pray before we turn to God's Word. Father, You are the living Word. Lord Jesus, You told those who were with You, if You desire to see the Father, look to Me. And so God, now we pray as we turn to Your Word, the written Word, God, that we would see Jesus in this Word. And in seeing Jesus, we'd be led to see You, the God in whom is life. Father, would You remove from our minds now things that might trouble us? Father, would You help us to set aside our priorities, our passions, Father, things that might be burdening us and allow us to turn our eyes to see Jesus, who is God. And we pray these things in His name and for His glory. Amen. Amen. Well, in our first year of marriage, Melinda and I were carefree and without any responsibilities but those that we had to ourselves individually and to each other. Granted, we had little more than each other, but that was all that we needed at that point in life. We were so in love, able to be spontaneous. I'm, I regularly, I remember regularly making runs to the border at about 11.30, even later sometimes, and or just because we could. Now, that's runs to Taco Bell for those whose faces are beginning to display concern that your pastor in his past was involved in international smuggling of consignment. This was burritos, bean burritos, 89 cents at the time, one of the few things that we could afford late at night. And as young marrieds, Melinda and I just loved going, doing whatever we wanted, whenever we wanted. But then our friends began having children. And so we realized times were changing. And so rather than diving into the deep end of bondage in life to babies, we decided we'd start with a dog, Maximus. Maximus was our first. <laughs> he was such a smart smart boy. We could take Max anywhere. I mean, he could, he could sit longer and he had greater self-control than all of our friends' children put together. He walked days after he was born. The man never wore a diaper and he almost never cried. Max was everything we wanted, believed we needed in a child. He could sit beside us on the floor eating pizza and never flinch because this is just how we trained him. He, Max was an amazing dog until he went and spent some time at my sister-in-law's house. We were gone to Germany to visit Melinda's parents, and Laura offered to keep Max. And so keen as young marrieds with little money to keep our kennel costs down, we agreed, tragically. Because what Max experienced in Tennessee was sin, as we had defined it. He was allowed to sit his 85-pound butt on the couch. He was allowed to eat from the table and sleep wherever he pleased. When Max came home, his wicked heart had awakened to all that he had been missing in life. The fruit that this man tasted from the tree of good and evil was so good, he'd gone back and he cleaned out the whole grove. I mean, Melinda and I could not believe what had become of our Max. And where we used to be able to leave this man alone whenever we'd leave the house, now we had to put him in a cage. Food he'd never found enticing now was irresistible. And this lovely bed that Melinda had labored over, an act of love that had his name on it, sat beside us on the floor. Now he treated like it was rocks. I mean, nothing but a cushioned couch would work for this man. We were beside ourselves as what to do at first. And so I took to retraining my child. I tried treats as rewards for good behavior. I tried punishment 
for bad behavior. I tried the rod of discipline to drive the wickedness from his heart. And it's, it seemed to work. You know, Max started to come around. We breathed a brief sigh of relief, glad to have our boy back. But then a couple years later and a couple kids later, right around Christmas, Melinda made this cookie Christmas tree with Elena. And I think Josiah was, was there at the time. And, and conscious of the temptation such a decadent treat posed to a recovering dog and out of concern for our Max, who was currently on the wagon, she placed it in the corner, far from the counter's edge and completely out of sight. And then she had an errand run. Melinda couldn't have been gone for more than 30 minutes. And to this day, Elena remembers mommy's reaction when she got home. I think Elena was like two, maybe two and a half. She remembers mommy losing it when she walked in and she found the Christmas tree made out of cookies lying in the sink with the edges all nibbled off with paw prints on the counter. Max found the tree. More accurately, the man sought it out. He had fallen back into the cycle from which we had tried so hard to free him. Melinda lost it. I mean, you know my wife, normally calm, cool, collective. She came, she came apart at the seams. This metamorphosis we're describing, this was Hulk-like. Elena, to this day, remembers Mommy chasing Max around the backyard with a stirring spoon trying to catch this brother. He, he had fallen back into a cycle of sin. And friends, this is the reality that we encounter, I believe, in the text that we're going to study today. So if you have your Bibles, if they're not open yet, would you find with me the book of Judges, chapter 3? Judges 3 and find verse 12. Judges 3.12. Now, while the anecdote of Max's sin cycle is humorous purposefully, the Israelites' experience was not. And my story in no way intends to make light of what we will be reading this morning. At the same time, there is a great, great deal of humor to be found in the story that we're going to study together. So I hope that the parallels provided will help us to more richly appreciate our God's salvation, which is so very great. So let's begin reading our text together, beginning with verse 12 there in Judges 3. Once again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, and because they did this evil, the Lord gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. Getting the Ammonites and Amalekites to join him, Eglon came and attacked Israel, and they took possession of the city of Palms. The Israelites were subject to Eglon, king of Moab, for 18 years. Again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he gave them a deliverer, Ehud, a left-handed man, the son of Gera the Benjamite. The Israelites sent him with a tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Let me stop right there, and let me just point out here how we see the cycle repeating itself. The cycle repeating itself. If you were with us last week, then you ought to remember, I won't hold you to that, but you ought to remember how we studied, we identified the paradigm of salvation. We talked about this with our children in the sermon earlier. It's like the life cycle of a butterfly, and it follows set stages. So we observe how our judge's author here is determined to display salvation's model so that we, the readers, can see the greatness of the God who saves. And so if you take just verse 12 there, which we just read, and you compare it to verses 7 and 8, which we studied last week, then you're going to see a striking resemblance as Israel sins and Yahweh's angry. 
Israel sins in Yahweh's anger. This is the first stage in our established cycle from last week. Israel sins only today we read once again the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So this wasn't the first time. The Israelites weren't engaging in practices that God disapproved of for the first time. They were returning to them. They were repeat offenders, sin addicts who'd gotten a taste of the cookie Christmas tree and they'd gone back for more. So what's interesting then about this reference here, verse 12, is both its, its brevity and its generality. Meaning we aren't told how this evil is engaged in. Only that it was engaged in. Now, if you were to look back to verse 7, which we looked at last week, there the sin is marked by two specific actions. Forsaking or forgetting the Lord and serving or worshiping Baals and Asherahs. Why our author avoids reference to the evil that's practiced here in verse 12, why he leaves it undefined is unclear. But I believe it's tied to that opening phrase, once again. In other words, Israel wasn't engaging in anything new. Because as the writer of Ecclesiastes would later state, verse 9 of chapter 1, what has been done will be done again. What has been will be again. There is nothing new under the sun. And friends, I believe this truth still holds true today. As we watch our nation descend into economic, political, social chaos, even in this last week, There's been outcries from the theologians of our pop culture decrying our vice president's wife's choice to return to teaching in a Christian school. Evidence of our culture and where we're headed. But church economies have floundered. Politicians have failed. And societies have fallen before, have they not? Sin is ever-present. And while it does find new forms of expression, sin itself, in its nature, remains the same. It's the willful, selfish rejection of God, His will and His ways. So Israel sinned again because their hearts were sinful. Their disobedience wasn't something that they simply stumbled upon. In other words, the evil they returned to wasn't like a puddle that they happened to step in as they sincerely sought to follow the Lord. No, their wicked hearts went looking for it. And this is our reality, church. We were all born with hearts that are at enmity with God, meaning we can't stand His rules and and His expectations because we're His enemies. Now, there are some who can play along for a time, tolerating God's conditions while it benefits them. But the moment that things change, they're gone. And this is Israel's issue, just as it is ours. Israel sinned again, and Yahweh was angry, as we're told there, that he gave Eglon, king of Moab, power over Israel. So just as we saw last week, Israel's suffering was a result of God's doing. And Eglon may have been the officer in charge here, but he's only God's proxy, serving divine justice for Israel's sin. And church, God's wrath at sin continues unabated today. He whose eyes, the prophet Habakkuk declares, are too pure to look on evil cannot tolerate wrong. So God hasn't come to peace with sin He isn't over the offense of immorality and the wickedness of depravity because as James tells us in his letter, chapter 1, verse 17, he does not change. That's God. 
like the shifting shadows. The psalmist adds 102 verse 27, you remain the same, God, and your years will never end. Therefore, despite the fact that we live in a New Testament age in which we prefer to focus on God's love and, and God's grace, people still have a dilemma. For we're all sinful. And God's antagonism towards sin has not changed. We face a quandary in this reality, just as did Israel. In verse 15, we see their response, which marks stage two in our paradigm. Israel's cry and Yahweh's Savior. Israel's cry and Yahweh's Savior. Verse 15, we read, again, the Israelites cried out to the Lord. So just as with their sin, so too now in their salvation, Israel turns to Yahweh. And I believe it's important to note here the nature of Israel's appeal again, because last week we observed how this cry doesn't reflect repentance. So it isn't a plea for forgiveness. This is just a plea for relief. In other words, Israel was hurting and they wanted help. They weren't interested in Yahweh's demand for holiness, just his power for deliverance. And so like the spoiled brats they were, they turned to the one they know can help. Now, I don't know about you, but this kind of behavior really gets my goat. Now, I don't know if it's because I'm an eldest child and I just like rules. I'm a stickler for principles. But when I watch people cry out for assistance with problems that they themselves have created due to their own ignorance or their own weakness or both, and they show no sign of remorse or even recognition of, of guilt, I get hot. I mean, these, these kinds of folks, I believe, are using this system, and in my opinion, they're getting what they deserve. And yet, as quick as I am to judge, church, I find myself convicted for similar behavior. For how, how often do I seek the Lord's aid in situations that I've caused? I am the creator of, and my appeal is based on sorrow, but not sorrow for my offense against God but sorrow for my present circumstances. I'm not grieved for my sin. I'm just grieved over the fact that I'm suffering. And I want out. I want relief. My, my heart reveals the harsh reality that my father used to address when after empty apologies, he'd say, if you were really sorry, Andrew, you wouldn't have done it in the first place. And I never knew how to respond to that statement. And I think the reason was deep down, I knew he was right. Israel cried out to the Lord, and he gave them a deliverer, Ehud, a left-handed man, the son of Gera, the Benjamite. God provides a savior again. Now, there are a number of interesting things to note in regards to this deliverer, and we'll come back to them in just a moment. But for right now, I simply want us to see how the cycle is being repeated. So we've noted Israel's sin and Yahweh's anger, Israel's cry, Yahweh's savior. We also see Israel's oppressor and Yahweh's power. Israel's oppressor and Yahweh's power, where the oppressor we've already identified as Eglon, king of Moab. Last week, we saw Israel's oppressor was Kushan, Rishatayim, or Kushan double bag, king of Aram. This week, it's Eglon. So two clear examples of individuals God used to oppress his people. But what isn't so clear here is the second half of this stage. That's Yahweh's power. Last week, we read verse 10 which says that the Spirit of the Lord came upon him, the hymn that's Othniel, whom God used to deliver to rescue his people. But now, here, verse 15, we're introduced to God's chosen instrument, Ehud, the left-handed Benjamite. However, there's no mention of God's Spirit, is there? Right? Clearly, 
Ehud was God's man in the sense that God gave him to them, the Israelites, to deliver them. But Ehud, at the same time, is not a deliverer like Othniel, in whom God's spirit resided. And this is going to become even more clear as the story progresses. But the point I want us to see at this stage, church, is that once again, God was at work. God was at work to teach his people about their brokenness and their need of a Savior. And these are conditions that we share. Because at one time, we were all oppressed. Under the thumb of sin and enslaved to Satan like the rest of the world, we crave, we live to gratify our natures, our cravings, following our desires wherever they led in its thoughts. Now, for some, our suffering was apparent to everybody. It was marked by outward signs of physical, emotional, maybe mental turmoil. But for others, worldly success, quote-unquote, masked this spiritual reality as we suffered despite the ability to purchase whatever we wanted, pleasure, even buy health insurance. We all need a Savior who is Jesus. Do you know him this morning? Without him, we all face God's steady, unrelenting, unremitting, uncompromising antagonism towards evil in all its forms. Without Jesus, we all face God's just wrath. But in Christ, God has provided us a deliverer. Do you know him? God provided Israel with a deliverer. And in this gift, we see then the fourth stage repeated in Israel's opportunity and Yahweh's gift. Israel's opportunity and Yahweh's gift. For in Ehud, God graciously delivered his people from the oppressor, providing them with the opportunity to know his rest. Now, I realize that our text hasn't yet explicitly described this rest, but I, I believe it's implicit, clearly implied in God's provision of the deliverer. And church, the gospel, the beauty of the gospel is that through faith in God's promised deliverer, Jesus Christ, we may know true and lasting rest. And, and this is a rest independent of circumstance, and it defies logic because it endures no matter what, and it can never be shaken. The promise of the gospel is that whoever repents of their sin and believes in Jesus will be saved, and saved forever. And I pray that everyone this morning has heard this gospel, now having heard this gospel, knows this gospel, knows the rest that is united with this gospel and its experience, and now brings you into fellowship with God through Christ Jesus. This is the salvation of our God, which is so great, and that we see pictured here in our text. So, as our story begins, we see this cycle repeating itself. However, the tone is different. The tone is different, and I alluded to this a moment ago, so I want you to see it now with me in our text. So, let's continue reading from verse 15, the middle of verse 15 there in your Bible, where our author writes, the Israelites sent him, that's Ehud, the Israelites sent him with tribute to Eglon, king of Moab. Now Eglon, or Ehud rather, had made a double-edged sword about a foot and a half long, which he strapped to his right thigh under his clothing. He presented the tribute to Eglon, king of Moab, who was a very fat man. After Ehud presented the tribute, he sent on their way the men who carried it. At the idols near Gilgal, he himself turned back and said, I have a secret message for you, O king. The king said, quiet, and all his attendants left him. 
Ehud then approached him while he was sitting alone in the upper room of his summer palace and said, I have a message from God for you. As the king rose from his seat, Ehud reached with his left hand, drew the sword from his right thigh, and plunged it into the king's belly. Even the handle <laughs> sank in after the blade, which came out his back. Ehud didn't pull the sword out, and the fat closed in over it. Then Ehud went out to the porch, shut the doors of the upper room behind him, and locked them. After he'd gone, the servants came and found the doors of the upper room locked. They said, he must be relieving himself in the inner room of the house. They waited to the point of embarrassment, but when he did not open the doors of the room, they took a key and unlocked it. There they saw their Lord fall into the floor dead. While they waited, Ehud got away. He passed by the idols and escaped to Syrah. When he arrived there, he blew a trumpet in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites went down with him from the hills, with him leading them. Follow me, he ordered, for the Lord has given Moab, your enemy, into your hands. So they followed him down, and taking possession of the fords of the Jordan that led to Moab, they allowed no one to cross over. At that time, they struck down about 10,000 Moabites, all vigorous and strong. Not a man escaped. That day, Moab was made subject to Israel, and the land had peace for 80 years. And let's stop there. You see why we're making the point that the tone is different? The tone is different, and it is so, I believe, in at least two ways. First of all, this story calls for laughter. It calls for laughter, doesn't it? You can't help but notice how the humor here, as our author makes light of Eglon's heaviness, describes in detail the disappearance of Ehud's dagger, and then he mocks the king's servants, mistaking his death with a lengthy bathroom break. Now, granted, some of this humor is best appreciated by five, six, seven-year-old, 38, 39, 40-year-old boys, uh, right? I thoroughly enjoyed this humor. Maybe you didn't. I did. This is even more pronounced when you examine this in the original language because there's a sarcastic tone that runs throughout this tale, and it's clearly communicated in the original. Sometimes these tones just do not translate into English, and they just can't capture, be captured in full. But in light of this noticeable difference, I believe as we read, we've got to ask the question, what's going on? Now, Othniel's deliverance was conveyed, if you look back, in the driest of manners. Just fact after fact after fact, whereas Ehud's is shared as a satire. Why? And church, I believe to answer this question, we've got to try and see this story through the eyes of an original reader, an original audience. As one commentator says, suggests, we've got to try to hear this story as an Israelite would have heard it or told it. An Israelite, if you remember, that for 18 years has been oppressed and taxed to the bone by blubbery King Eglin. An Israelite who's therefore living in persisting poverty, eking out some borderline existence in the hill country of Ephraim. And so the sarcasm that we sense running throughout this story here, I believe, reflects our author's disdain for Israel's oppressor, his desire to, to belittle all adversaries of God's people, and also a determination through this text to teach his readers that, as one pastor theologian states, that it is perilous to oppress God's people because you may well become the punchline in one of Yahweh's jokes that God leads his people to laugh even after sorrow and to smile at the funny ways that he has of delivering them from trouble. 
And I think one further thing, that there is there's no reason that God's ways have to be dull and boring. And isn't that true? How often have you spoken to people from, from your communities or maybe even friends that express the attitude, well, man, church is so, so dull. You know, Christian life, man, it's got about as much flavor as cardboard. And the God of the Bible, well, that sounds about as exciting as spending a day in the desert alone. And yet, church, nothing could be further from the truth as revealed in this story. Because here we have a picture of a God who's not white-gloved, standoffish, and disinterested, but rather a God who, who so delights in his people that he does all of these things. And, and, and these are a people who are messed up. God delights in delivering his people and making them laugh again. David saying in Psalm 30, Weeping may remain for a night, but what? Joy comes in the morning. Joy that's marked by laughter. That's what we see going on in this text, the tone that's different. But our story is calling for laughter, but it also challenges us ethically. It challenges us. Ehud's behavior is hairy, to say the least. How are we to understand his treatment of the king. You know, as a vassal state, Israel was beholding to Moab. They owed a tribute, and, and this they sent with Ehud. However, once in Moab, Ehud used this obligation coupled with a lie about a message for the king, a message from God, no less, to ensnare or ensure this private audience that he then uses to assassinate the man. And if this weren't enough, following all of these things, he locks the door and he runs away. So what are we to make as readers of this moral mess, particularly today, do we believe this teaches us that the end justifies the means? That at times God ordains sin in order to secure salvation for his people? Or, or maybe it's that in dealing with the wicked, anything goes. And I don't think any, any of these are right. Because God does care deeply about his people's behavior. And therefore the means are just as important as the end, which is in God's hands anyways. Also, God never condones sin. Never. For if he did, even if he could, he would cease to be God as the scriptures reveal him to be. And in our dealings with those who we would consider to be wicked, God commands us to love our enemies, to love as we love ourselves. Love's the only thing that goes. So what then are we to learn from this, this moral mess? Are we to learn anything? And, and I believe the answer is most certainly we are. Why? Because the Apostle Paul informed Timothy that all Scripture is God-breathed. And it's useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness so that the man or woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. So, so there's something to be learned here. And I believe that is the truth of how God in his saving work is not limited by the instruments available. Let me say that again. God, in his saving work, is not limited by the instruments available. He's able to use both refined and crude tools, Othniel's and Ehud's, to work his glorious ends. And I say this because despite the concern that we may have for Ehud's methods here, by the time we get to verse 28, we can't miss the fact that the true hero of this story is who? God. And even Ehud 
has come to this realization. Because you notice how he commands all of Israel, verse 28, follow me. Why? For the Lord has given Moab, your enemy, into your hands. And don't miss how these words come from the mouth of our deliverer. These aren't an observation inserted by the narrator. These are the words of our deliverer himself. And church, as we consider our own lives, I believe we should be encouraged. We ought to be filled with joy by the knowledge that God's saving work cannot be hindered by people. He who used both the noble, well-connected Othniel along with the lying left-handed assassin Ehud to deliver his people is certainly able to deliver you. And I rejoice in the fact that if God could use these dudes, then he certainly can use me and you. He can use us, church, in order to help lead others to a saving relationship with himself. So the tone in this story is clearly different from that we saw last week. However, the end is the same. The end is the same. A final point this morning. Verse 30 declares that day, Moab was made subject to Israel and the land had peace for 80 years. The length of time that's given there is one that most scholars believe reflected two generations. And so what's fascinating to me about this figure is that it's double that we saw last week in Othniel's deliverance. If you look back to verse 11, you'll notice there that the land had peace for 40 years. And today it's 80. 80 and I find this absolutely amazing because of how our story began. You remember the first two words that we read this morning? Once again. So here's the point. And if you remember nothing else, I hope and pray that you'll take this with you. Don't forget this. Even though Israel sinned again, God still graciously delivered them and graciously gave them peace. A peace that was double that which had marked their first failure. So God's giving is unlike any giving we know. He doesn't give because we deserve. He gives because he's gracious. And he gives lavishly. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. This church is how God gives. Have you experienced it? Have you experienced his grace in forgiveness, his love in redemption, and his hope in salvation? You can, and you can experience it. And when you do, it will be just like the experience of Israel. They didn't do anything to deserve it. All they did was receive it, and you can too. The Bible declares that if you confess your sin and you believe in Jesus, then you will be saved. And as we close, I'd like to pray. And I'd like to pray for those who may be here this morning who've never trusted Christ to save them. Now, I'm going to pray that God would this morning have opened your eyes to see the reality of your need, to be able to acknowledge the hurt that you have. Maybe it's a loneliness. Maybe you, you feel left all alone with no friends in the world, a, a pointless life before you. Maybe your heart is grieving over lost loved ones or or, or the reality of, of pain, maybe your disease. The Bible declares that if we confess our sin and believe in Jesus, we will be saved. That is a hope that defies your circumstance. So church, I'd like to pray for us this morning that God would graciously use us to lead others to know his saving grace. And as I pray, I'd encourage you to pray with me. 
Pray with me for those that God might bring to mind. Maybe it's a neighbor. Maybe it's a coworker, a family member. Maybe it's, it's someone that you, or maybe it's someone else, a friend. But let's pray that God would use us to lead these men and women to know the God whose salvation is so very great. So would you pray with me as we close? Father God, you are the God who saves. And we praise you that you are not limited to the instruments available in your saving work. Father, you used two different individuals in the stories that we've seen these last two weeks. Two very different individuals. But you used them nonetheless for your glory to save your people. Father, we thank you that in the sending of your son Jesus, the promised Messiah, the Savior of the world, that God in Christ, you have made available the greatest gift ever. Lord God, as you open hearts, eyes to the reality of need, to the offense of our sin, Lord, and as you lead us to repent, I pray this morning that there would be those who have not yet done that, but that today, having heard your gospel, having had their hearts, eyes open, would be willing to follow faithfully and confess their sin and seek your forgiveness and trust Christ for that rest which you promise. Lord, and as your people commissioned to make disciples, we pray that you would, God, lead us to boldly practice the faith that you have given us so graciously. Lord, be always ready to give an answer for the hope that you have given us, a hope that is, again, independent of our working, but a gift that you've given. Father, thank you for the reminder of the greatness of your salvation. Lord, would you use us, we pray, continue to see fit to work through your people here for your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.